everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Want to give you a quick update on the book because the date, October 1st, is fast approaching. Just got some feedback from the publisher and the pre-sales are awesome. They're amazing. And they're actually to the point now where they're talking about a significant breakthrough. I want to describe this in kind of a book insider way. Uh, there's certain things that propel a book to doing really well. Obviously, you want to try to get uh, on some bestseller lists. You want to have people start to pick you up. You want to be like the hot commodity coming out the gate. I think those things were all seen as like distant possibilities months ago because I'm a first-time author and who's heard of this? We're now starting to get a lot of momentum internally. I need you, if you are interested in these ideas, you're interested in this podcast, go and get a copy of this book. I mean, you can go to wherever you buy books. If it's your local bookstore, if it's an online retailer, whatever it is, uh, get Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Get yourself one. Get your closest family member one. Get the person who you've been wanting to tell them about Strong Towns, but uh, just don't know the words. Get them one. The better we can be out of the gate here, the better this whole thing is going to go. So do us a favor. If you're planning to buy this book anyway, don't wait till October. Go do it now. And by the way, they'll deliver it to you October 1st. So, I mean, you'll be the first one to get it and you're going to love it. I promise. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I think most of you listening know now that I have this book coming out October 1st, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. One of the things I've been doing is going back and talking to the people who have most inspired me and, and the people who I have found have most influenced the ideas in that book. And one of the major ones, and I'm going to say, I think one of the most underrated ones that, uh, that you're going to run into is this guy named Steve Mozan. Steve and I met, boy, it's about a decade ago now. And at first I thought, who is, who is this guy? <laughs> then I got to know him and then I read his book, Original Green, and it changed a lot of how I think about things. And so I asked him to come on. He's been on the podcast a couple of times before. We've chatted quite a bit. He's written for Strong Towns. You've probably seen his work around. Now today he comes from us from Alabama. Steve, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be back. I'm not joking. I feel like the Original Green is one of these like niche books that should have like a cult following. It's one of these books that I think is incredibly underrated in the urbanism canon. Can you talk a little bit about why you had to write this book and what you were hoping to accomplish when you put it together back in 2010? It was when it was published, I think. Yes, exactly. A lot of the things in the book were things that I'd been trying to figure out literally for a quarter of a century or more. And uh, actually, some of it, uh, the very beginnings of it goes back to the day after Thanksgiving 1980, but that's a different story. In other words, it, it's, it's stuff I've been working on for a very long time. At about that time, 08, 09, when I was working on the book, that there was, you know, really kind of the, that's when the, the whole green realization Light bulbs begin to turn on for a lot of people, but everything at that time, and it's almost as bad today, but not quite. Everything at that time was, was framed around what I called gizmo green, which is the proposition that with uh, better equipment and better materials, we can achieve true sustainability. And while those are a part of true sustainability, they're only a very small part. And there's so many other things that people were just completely missing. And I said, you know, now that I've got the pieces of the puzzle fairly coherent in my own mind. I really need to get this out there now, which is basically a decade ago, because it's just all being so misunderstood in this narrow silo of better equipment, better materials. And so it, it really was a, uh, uh, I just felt like I had to, it was a, um, not for my own interest, but for public interest. How do you think this book has held up? And I'll put on my own answer to that first, but then I'll let you riff on it a little bit. I feel like you had some really critical insights 
about basically how our ancestors built in ways that were green and sustainable by the metrics we're trying to get to today. I feel like history over the last decade has made those insights even more important. I mean, we're talking about hyperloops and automated vehicles and, and all these crazy ways to solve problems that are really kind of simple and that our ancestors seem to have solved a long time ago. How do you think someone picking up this book today would, would react to it? And, and how do you think these ideas have held up? Before I even get into what I was asking myself, uh, let, me, let me frame it this way. And, and that is that, that uh, one of the, one of the uh, uh, things that happens uh, just again and again with Gizmo Green is, and in, in actually, I don't know if you ever go to an AIA convention, you probably would have no reason to, but it's just absolutely hilarious uh, to walk around the, the show floor and you come across the timber people's booth and they, they will prove to you why timber is the most sustainable material out there. You walk around the corner to the steel booth and they're saying the exact same thing about steel. No kidding. You can even go to the glass curtain wall booth and they're proving to you why glass curtain wall is the most sustainable thing you can do. When in reality, it's, it's just completely ridiculously backwards from that. So when I was trying to to frame the book, I said, I cannot let this become an apology for the neurobinism. In other words, I can't just say, well, here's, here's what the neurobinism does, and let me show you why it's the greenest thing, because I would be just like the, you know, the steel curtain wall people. And uh, if I were to do that, I, I said, you know, I have to ask some more fundamental questions. And, and that is that what's the most important thing that you must be able to do in order to live in a place? So it quickly became pretty apparent that if you can't eat there, you can't live there. Of course, today we can ship food all over the world, uh, but there will come a day, I, I feel like, where it, at some point in the future, when the current energy glut has ended, that it will actually matter where your food comes from. And so that was the, the basis of, the, of, of what became what I call nourishable places. And so and I spent quite a, a good deal of time uh, trying to ask myself those questions of, of what are the, the most important things for a person to be able to live in a place and then be able to live in a building it was my intent, anyway, that those be timeless questions, and it is my hope that the answers are, are to some degree, at least, timeless as well. You know, of course, if you used the, the American standard of measuring things, uh, the book is still selling pretty well for a 10-year-old book, you know, or a 9-year-old book. And I, I feel like that's the key to it, was asking questions about things that were meant to be timeless. I have sitting on my desk here a book you sent me. This is related to Original Green, so give me a little slack. I'm not sure why you sent it to me, except to be kind. It's the, the, A Living Tradition, Architecture of the Bahamas. As I thumb through this book that you put together, you, you and your wife Wanda put together, I'm astounded by the depth of insight that you have into these kind of nuances of what, what you call this living tradition. Can you talk about what a living tradition is and why it's an important concept that, especially if you are interested in sustainability, environmentalism, and green, why that is such a key concept? Let me do that. But before I do that, let me jump back to one other thing about that book. And actually, the reason I sent it to you is because of the fact that, that I talk about you in the book and everybody oh, really? talked about it. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so you're, you're in there, but actually the first chapter and the last chapter are completely rewritten from the first edition 10 years ago of a living tradition architecture of the Bahamas. And especially what that first chapter is, is really the whole thing is an update of the original green, quite frankly. And, and so it's stuff that I've figured out uh, since the original green came out. And because Living traditions and the original green are so firmly intertwined. Uh, it seemed perfectly appropriate to talk about it in that book. So anyhow, take a look, especially at that first chapter. You're in the last chapter where it talks about the stuff that we've figured out and that we're all, you know, that, that at least some of us are doing now that we didn't know about, uh, you know, a decade ago. And so, but back to the living tradition, a living tradition is the original crowdsourcing. What a true living tradition does, you know, at, at the very beginning, it starts out with a single great insight by one person about how to do something better. It could be a better way to build an eve for the, the regional conditions and climate and culture, whatever it is. And so if they, through their passion and perseverance, if they actually uh, transmit that 
to a, a, a hive of like-minded individuals, then that insight turns into a, uh, a an initiative. If that initiative then gets outside the hive to a you know a larger cohort, uh, then it turns into a movement. Then if it it breaks generational boundaries to your parents and your kids and grandparents and all that, then it reaches the the highest level of ideas that spread, which is a living tradition. And and um, you know the whole idea of the living tradition is it it's not something that you feel like you need a PhD to participate in, uh, but rather it's it's great ideas that are expressed in very simple ways that all start with we do this because. In other words, there's a reason why we do things. It's not just because your daddy told you so, you know, or or whatever. Uh, and it's not just a replication of something that the old folks did that meant something to them 200 years ago. When I say old folks, I mean dead people. But it's something that that makes a difference in my life now. And so I can't, for that reason, I care deeply about it. Our whole problem, or one of the big problems, with the way sustainability is being sold today is not just the gizmos, but it's also that it's someone else that is coming to save you. And it's an R&D department somewhere halfway around the world that's going to invent cold fusion or whatever. And, and so there's this expectation, you know, it makes everyone very passive. And they say, okay, you know, they're going to, they're going to have uh, insanely efficient cars so we can drive where we want to and it won't matter. There's literally this week I saw a conversation on Facebook where somebody was, was still making the case that we're going to have electricity too cheap to meter. Now, I mean, I thought we, I thought we learned a half century ago that that's not going to happen, but nonetheless, there, there's uh, I think what it is, is that the, the real truth of the condition that we're in right now is so hard for a lot of folks to bear that they want to frame it in such a way that someone else is coming to save us. But, but actually it's the things that we as cultures and communities uh, will do. And to do that, it's got to be expressed in a very simple way, not in rocket science. During my training as an engineer, it maybe wasn't spoken, but it was certainly an undercurrent or implied that people back in the day, whatever you think that means, lived lives that were not very sanitary. Uh, you know, they, they lived with disease and, and uh, what have you. They, they didn't clean up their garbage. They died young because they, you know, didn't have the, the great things we have today that engineers provide. Sewer systems, water systems, garbage disposal. I kind of was very comfortable with that world. You know, I was very comfortable looking back at our ancestors as kind of backward and us having this superior level of intelligence where not only uh, did we not drink our own sewage, but hey, we have air conditioning and we have, uh, you know, modern appliances and, and isn't life better now today? And you pushed me or opened me up to thinking more deeply about the wisdom and the knowledge that our ancestors actually had. Make the case that these people were green. Make the case that these people were smart and thoughtful and, you know, worthy of not only our our study and examination, but oftentimes our praise and admiration. Before I get into that, I'm going to preface that with something else as well. And that is to say that about, oh, I guess 15 years ago or so, before the original green came out, um, I had just a, a totally eye-opening experience because I also had heard all the all the stories about how everyone before our time uh, lived these these wretched, miserably short lives, died young, and, and uh, all this kind of stuff. I was in Boston and uh, went to see the Old North Church. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and uh, there was a right across the street, nearly. There's a hill where there's a cemetery on the hill, and I walked through the cemetery and was reading the gravestones. And these people in the 1700s, they were living to be 80 and 90 years old. Now, sure, some of them died at 60, but that, that happens now as well. And, and it's like, wait a minute now. Everybody's been lying to me about all these miserably short lives. You know, it just isn't so. Look at the, you know, uh, look at the facts. And, and so, but um, uh, and I will say this, that the things that, that they learned about how to build sustainably in a place, it was very often hard one wisdom and the penalty for not learning those things was death you you know you just uh 
uh, you wouldn't live very long if, if you go to a place that you can't eat or you can't take shelter. Like, for example, I, I've done a lot of work uh, in what I call the Caribbean Rim, uh, you know, like the Bahamas and other places. And there, if you were to, uh, you know, 300 years ago, uh, if a hurricane came and you were lucky enough to have survived the hurricane, but your house was unlucky enough to not have survived. When you crawled out of the wreckage of your house and saw your neighbor's house still standing, you said, I'm going to rebuild like that. <laughs> There's you some know? wisdom yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's absolutely some wisdom. You know, the shape of the roof, the roof slope. Uh, you know, the uh, hurricane experts now tell us that 8 and 12 to 9 and 12 is kind of the, the, uh, the sweet spot. It's not so shallow that it fails in uplift or so steep that it fails in overturning. And But long before there were hurricane experts, our ancestors had already figured that out. And they figured out that you don't want to have a, uh, a an eave that's too long or the wind gets up under that. And when it begins to peel back, the uh, the decking of the roof, that decking acts as a diaphragm to support the wall. And so you lose your decking. And the next thing to go is the walls collapse and you can lose the entire building just because your eave's too big. And, and But they knew that stuff. And that's that's... That's how they built. Once they once they figured it out, then that's how they built for a very long time. And the things that they built, they also learned how to build in such a way that that reflected uh, humanity, uh, both in our physical shape uh, and in other things about us. And so it became things that not only not only was strong in a storm, but it's things that people loved as well. And, and because uh, uh, you know, if you if you if if a building can't be loved. We'll get rid of it as quick as we can. You know, there's a, there was a website a few years ago. I haven't gone to it in recent uh, years, but it was called the Demolition of the Month. It was a European-based site. It was documenting buildings that were demolished for for no performance reason, but simply because people said these things are hideous. We will not tolerate them in our town anymore, and and so they take them down. And and so, but you know, there's things like that that have never been in the discussion about sustainability, but really desperately need to be. Yeah. I want to circle back to that idea of lovability because I think that was the one, that was the one idea. It's the one I put in my book. I reference you very specifically twice in my book. And the first one's on this concept of lovability because there's nowhere, I mean, there's nowhere in engineering school where you talk about this. It's, it's not part of the curriculum. And it's certainly, you know, I think maybe you could make a case that it, it should have been part of the planning school curriculum, but it, it wasn't there either. This idea that something needs to be lovable or it just won't be sustained. And I, I think when you gave me that insight, I stepped back and I looked and I had a hard time identifying very few things in my community that we would universally point to and say, we will save that because we love it. Talk a, a little bit about that. I also want to push you to just say, what do, you, what do you think that's done to us as a as a culture and as people to build places that we ultimately don't feel attached to? I, I kind of peg it uh, to the 1920s, and now it was it was starting to happen before that, and it, it did not culminate until after that. But the 1920s is kind of when it really uh, caught its stride, and that is, you know, before that time, basically everyone was a generalist. In most things, they sew their own clothes, they'd uh, raise their own food, they would build their own houses, all these uh, sorts of things. And, and uh, but beginning kind of in the twenties, where you could, for the first time, afford to to actually spend your time as a specialist doing one thing, and then trade the money from the time uh, you spent that the money you earned to buy things uh, from other specialists. Then what happened at, at that point? That's when we all fell down the silos. Nobody could since that time. They had no authority to, if I'm not an engineer, how can I question what you do? Because you are one and I'm not. I haven't been trained. And, and uh, I feel like that that's how so many uh, horrible things, both with architecture and urbanism, have been foisted upon the public, uh, simply because we're now told that we can't, unless you're trained in that, you have no authority to question it. And, and so it's exactly at that time that the end of lovability, uh, I call it the great decline. Specifically, I say 1945, I mean, 1925, 1945 was a great decline. When I tell that story, then uh, in discipline after discipline, from farmers to musicians to, you know, I can name quite a number of disciplines that, that someone has come up to me that, you know, they farm or whatever, 
And they say, you know, Steve, that's the exact same story in my discipline as well. It all happened at about that time. So it wasn't just architecture and, and urbanism. You know, it was, it was all aspects of life, you know, that we gave up to the specialists. Now, I have great hope now that that, that is in the process of swinging back. In the 1960s, there was this thing called twilight birth, where if a mother was giving birth, they would medicate her to within an inch of uh, consciousness, and she'd hardly even know she was having a kid. And, uh, you know, of course, now uh, we've taken a lot of people anyway, have taken back the childbirth process to be a much more family-based thing, or at least a couple-based thing, as opposed to a specialist-based thing. You know, the doctors are still there. It's not like you do it without, well, some people do it without, but for most people, the doctors are still there, but they don't, they're not completely dominating. And I could tell that story about countless other things in life today where, where we're, we're starting to take stuff back and it gives me hope. Now, let me tell you what my hope is for the professions of engineering. On the one hand, uh, Leonardo da Vinci could be considered uh, the father of modern engineering. Uh, on the other hand, he was one of, one of the greatest artists of all time. And so there was in one person both the ability to figure out all sorts of cool stuff and to do things incredibly beautifully, even the stuff he was figuring out, he was drawing beautifully. That is my hope for engineering is, is that engineering actually recovers that ability to be both and not just to be down one silo. Can you talk about the practice of being a town architect? I know this is something that you have done and that you've undertaken. And I, don't, I don't know if towns can still hire you today to do this or not, but I found it fit that kind of niche, that space between the silo technical professional and the, the, the broad generalist. What is a town architect? Why is this kind of an important historical position? And why is it so important? The town architect, it's a bit of a, a misnomer in the way it, it happens today. It's actually very, very hard to have uh, a town or a city that had somebody that fulfilled the town architect role uh, for a number of different legal reasons. Basically, whereas within the new urbanism, because it is the developer uh, selling to a homeowner or business owner or whatever, there's only two entities, the buyer and the seller. And so the seller can regulate, in other words, the town founder can regulate what the, uh, what the others do. But when you have an existing property that's already been built and they're looking to sell it to someone else who wants to do something with it, then for the city to have a town architect on staff that says, no, you can't do it like that. You got to do it like this. Constitutionally, that is considered a taking. So uh, a town architect actually working for a town is, as it stands right now, it's an unconstitutional thing, and which is regrettable, but, but it is what it is until we figure out another way around it. But what, so all of my work has been with either with new urbanist neighborhoods or the one place that I've worked for a very long time, basically as a town architect, but that's not my official title there. Uh, is at the University of Alabama. And, and so on my, on my watch since 2001, we built about $2.5 billion worth of stuff that I'm delighted to say that it was able to help it uh, become better. Now, the, the basic idea is, is that the town architect is a, it's kind of the vision keeper. There, there's a place in Birmingham, Alabama, where I've been a town architect uh, for about that same length of time. I think it was 01 or 02. And they've had four different development managers over the years, with that turnover, then you can't really have somebody keeping the vision that's not going to be there as long. And and so, uh, but but when the town architect can be there the whole time, you know, coming up on 20 years now, then uh, that actually helps uh, have the continuity uh, that is necessary for for uh, having a great place, uh, in my opinion. A little bit about the way it works. Now, I tried every town architect method, and there's several methods except for the resident town architect. I've never, quite frankly, I've never been able to afford to buy a house uh, in a place where I'm town architect. The, 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 because of the fact that, that you're creating places that people love, the value uh, can get out of hand pretty quickly, and, and uh, at least out of my budget. And, and so that's one method I've never tried, but I tried every other method that was available at the time or known at the time, and they all failed for, for various reasons. So I kind of developed my own that uh, I've been using for, for a long time now. And basically, it's a, it is a principle-based method as opposed to a taste-based method. You know, most of the most design review boards or, or town architects work on a taste-based method where the basic proposition is, is, thou shalt do this because I have better taste than you. 
Uh, now, people might comply, but nobody really likes it. But um, when, uh, but what I'm trying to do is in all these places that work to literally start new living traditions uh, of architecture. And so everything that, that I talk to people about of making a change on something, it all begins with we do this because. Here's the rationale behind it. And oh, by the way, if, if, if you don't like the particular way that I'm showing you, because I've opened the window up uh, on the rationale, then you're free to think of another way to do it that you like a whole lot better. And, and so those four words, we do this because, uh, literally gives architecture the ability to live again because it gives the people the ability to think again. It's not just some expert telling you, here, you got to do it this way. They're saying, here's why we do what we do. And it actually has the ability to be the most modern of architecture because when you're giving everyone the ability to think, then they're going to come up with some stuff that's never been seen before. Uh, you know, and, and uh, if it sticks, you know, it becomes a part of the, the living tradition of that place, uh, even though it's highly inventive. You know, we, uh, a lot of times traditionalists, I've um, identified myself as one for, for a long time. A lot of traditionalists tend to think that anything new must be bad, and so you must fight all the new. That absolutely isn't true. You know, anyone with a, a copy of an architectural history book and at least one good eye can see that architecture has always evolved from the dawn of time until, uh, until we started having that little series of little revolutions in, uh, in the 1920s. It's a very important thing uh, for people to understand why you build the way you build in a place. And one thing happened that, that really submitted this to me. There was a, a place where I was both the town planner and the town architect in Alabama near, uh, near Montgomery. It's called The Waters. And they had a an really unfortunate event that, that combined with, uh, uh, with the meltdown in, in 2008 ended up with the, uh, uh, with the town founder uh, losing the land. The people that bought the land were what I call kind of vulture developers. But I'll tell you how, how bad they did. There was a park that was right down on this big 200-acre lake. Because of the fact that the original town founder never uh, – it never occurred to him that he might not have the land someday. He never dedicated the park. When these guys came in, they cut it up for lots. You know, I mean, that, that's – when I say vulture, that's what I'm talking about. I went back there a few years ago. It was absolutely so gratifying to see that some of the builders that they had were some of the original builders who I'd worked with. Others were builders from the surrounding area that I'd never worked with. And you can still see to this day that, that the builders that I had worked with to help start a new living tradition, they were still building that way. They knew why you do what you do. And they kept it up even when I wasn't there to enforce anything. Well, what's that? 11 years now. You know? So, um, it has actually persisted uh, for longer than I was there. I was only there uh, working with him for five years, and it's persisted for 11. So, it, you know, a lot of this stuff having to do with, with living traditions or things that, you know, I've been just trying to figure out, quite frankly, they were, a lot of them were things that, that I would just call my best guess as to how could this have happened. So some of these things, I've, I've tried them, and I've been, I've been, really convinced that that it's actually the truth but until you try it you actually don't know it could work out another way (laughs) i've done the same thing i've walked a street 50 times just up and down up and down i'll i'll take the dog for a walk and i'll walk up and down a street for a whole month in a row i'll pick a different street and i'll ask myself why do they do this i can't overstate the influence that your book and and just knowing you has had on my thinking the engineering profession is not like a humble profession it's a profession where you're told you have the answers. Here's the answers. They're in a book. Uh, this is very clear. This is knowledge you have that other people don't. And, uh, you know, go forth and do great things. And I think to walk a neighborhood and ask the question, assuming that the people who did this stuff were smart, intelligent, thoughtful people who did things for a reason, and then to spend time trying to understand that reason it's one of the things you gave me. I, I think I would ascribe to you is like, I need to do more of that. We all do. Yeah. No, we all do. I, I totally agree. But I, I think you opened my eyes to that even more. You know, the idea that that's, that's how you get wisdom, really. Yeah, it really is. You know, and this is for several years after Katrina, Prince Charles had sent his foundation over to New Orleans to try to help with the, with the recovery process. And I, I was, 
I had the privilege of, of uh, teaching some of those classes where we were training craft apprentices. And one of the things I would always do, uh, we'd spend actually uh, an entire day doing it, is to, to go out on pattern hunting expeditions. And what I, would, what I would tell people is to look very closely at what you're seeing and you won't recognize it the first time because a pattern, by definition, is something you have to see repeatedly. If you see something happening again and again, you know, and they finally will dawn on you, oh, wait, this is something they did a lot. And then ask yourself, well, why would they have done that? You know, what's the most rational uh, explanation, you know, uh, in simplest explanation, you know, use Occam's razor. Don't don't go for something uh, really crazy, but uh, actually actually try to say what would be the simple reason why they might have done this. Once you've kind of figured that out, then you have another question to ask, and that is, is this a pattern for the living as well as the dead or just a pattern for the dead? Because there's some, some things that old folks did that actually don't have any meaning uh, for us today. And like uh, uh, ancient words in the English language that uh, have fallen out of use, then patterns fall out of use as well. And so just because you see a pattern doesn't mean that it's something that's meaningful to the living. And here's the other thing, too. There might be a pattern that is meaningful to us today for different reasons than it was meaningful to to our ancestors. For for example, window uh, muttons, window light patterns. If you talk to uh, engineers, they will tell you, or historians, they will tell you that uh, we had different sizes and so forth and arrangements of uh, window lights because of glass making technology at that time. That, like, for example, in the 1700s, you could only make little bitty panes, whereas in the late uh, 1800s, we could make much larger panes. And so that, that changed it. Now, if you tell that to a builder or to a homeowner, you know, their eyes glaze over. But if you explain to them that what that mutton does is it diffuses light coming into a room. And so diffuse light is more beautiful than, than uh, harsh light and it makes everything in the room more beautiful, including the people. Now, once they understand that, then, then that's got their interest. Then if you tell them, okay, the most refined buildings tend to have lots of divided lights, uh, but those are more expensive. Whereas uh, the most vernacular buildings or the simplest buildings, you know, they can't afford uh, a lot of window lights. So it might just be a two over two as opposed to a nine over nine or whatever. And so it's less beautiful, but you save money then not only do you give them a reason to, to need that, but you also give them a way of making a decision uh, about how many window lights they should have in, the, in their windows that makes sense for the budget. And um, so you have, you have brought that pattern totally into the present in a very meaningful way, even though the reason that the old folks did it was a very different thing having to do with uh, glass technology. So, um, so uh, patterns could be one of three things. It can either be, uh, stuff that, that uh, a pattern that, that has no benefit for us today, a pat- uh, pattern that has a benefit uh, for us today for the same reason as it did for the old folks, or patterns that have benefit uh, to us today for different reasons than when they first originated. But in any case, what you do is you, you, you find the patterns, you figure out what the story is behind them, and then the ones that do mean something to us, you, you tell the story of that pattern beginning with those four words of, of we do this because, and, and that's the beginning of, of, of starting a new living tradition. Now, when I was uh, teaching that class, it was, there was one year, a young woman, uh, one of the craft apprentices, uh, when she was presenting her work, she said, Steve, I've lived in New Orleans all my life, but I have never seen the city like this. Thank you for giving me a new city to live in. The act of finding patterns and learning the wisdom behind them Really, it, it, it has profundity to it because it, it really is getting at the ways that humans have lived life in a better way. You know, everybody's always been trying to figure out how do I live this life in a better way. And that's that's how people that came before us had, had figured those things out. And to get to, to kind of get insights into their thinking, that's a part of the continuity uh, of civilization, in my opinion. As you were talking there, I was thinking about how we experience so much of our landscape from behind the wheel of a, of a vehicle. And in that sense, something scaled like a billboard has more meaning on our life than, you know, the refined trim on the, the windowsill. You know, I think about how much energy 
our ancestors spent, you know, we've talked about ancestors. We're both speaking in the largest possible sense of the word. I mean, we've traveled, you and I both have been to different parts of the world and seen this attention to detail. You know, the idea that people much poorer than us, in a sense, you know, we look at them as, as much less refined or much, much more, uh, you know, less sophisticated and certainly much less affluent than we are paid all this attention to detail on the space they inhabited in ways that, you know, we just seem incapable of today. Why'd they do this? What was it that drove them to this? It gets back to that generalist specialist thing. And, and that is that when almost everyone was, a, was mainly a generalist, then there were so many things open to them that they were allowed to think about, uh, you know, about living life that, 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 uh, they were able to participate in so much more. You know, at this point in time, our main participation in in things that, that have a part in making up our lives is just simply as a consumer. Think about that. We just purchase stuff, you know. On everything that we purchase, the door is closed to, you know, to us thinking much more deeply about it and, and because we, we have no part in, in the in the making of it. It's just, it's just something we buy and then we throw away. And so in... In my opinion, those who were generalists and who had the door, so many doors open to them were actually arguably a lot more sophisticated than we are now as just mere consumers. You know, I feel like it's we who are, we may have become wealthier and we may have a, a higher standard of living, but I would, I would maintain that, that quality of life does not necessarily follow. Personally, I would much rather have a higher quality of life than just a higher standard of living. Uh, it's like my, my sister, Hazel Boris, said. She said, you know, we bought this lake house a few years ago, and we were so happy to own it until we discovered that it actually owned us. You know, in, in architecture, I believe it's Frank Lloyd Wright that said that nothing that came before us is worthy of us. And But whether it was Wright or someone else, I've never been able to find that quote. I read it one time years ago back in college, and uh, but haven't been able to find it since. But regardless of, of who said it, you kind of alluded to this a little while ago. That's that's been kind of the uh, the core foundation of modernity. Is it, it, you know, look how brilliant we are. Everybody that was before us, they were they were just uh, you know they don't deserve to even be mentioned in the same uh, breath with us. And the, you know, I mean, the, now I'm I'm making that kind of extreme, but some people do make that uh, that very much extreme. And we've kind of deluded ourselves, quite frankly, uh, as to who the sophisticated folks really were. Right. I want to ask you one more thing about original green. This is something I, I did include in the book, and that's on the the concept of maintenance free. As an engineer, we're kind of trained to build things to last, and part of building things to last and reducing your overall costs is reduce the the maintenance costs and uh, make it turnkey and make it simple. I want you to talk about what it means to have something maintenance free, but I, I'd like to also ask you to get into the idea of who does the maintaining. I feel like there's this whole uh, section of society, and, and, and maybe this is something, you alluded to it a little bit in the original Green, but I, I think this is something we've become a lot more aware of over the last decade since this book was, was first published, and, and that is that there's a whole class of people, and I'll use the word class, and some people might push back on that, but, but be generous with me, please. I'll use the word class. There's a whole class of people who's, dignity whose you know lives were around maintaining this stuff and maintaining it well talk a little bit about what it means to be maintenance free and I, I think also what it means to be someone who maintains someone I believe it's Frank Green uh, said this several years ago and it, or he's the first person I heard say it uh, and I absolutely love it he said when something claims to be maintenance free what it really means is that it's maintenance proof in other words, you can't maintain it because if something is meant to be perfect and and anything happens to it, when's the last time you've seen somebody that that uh, uh, actually repaired their own, you know, did their own car body work as opposed to you know what everybody does now is they just replace the body part that's damaged, you know, and and uh, because you don't want the little ripples in it and stuff that that shows that uh, that it was repaired by hand, and so but that applies to so many things having to do with. Um, with with the parts of buildings and and well parts of cities for that matter, but uh, parts of everything that we do that that if it if it claims to be maintenance free, uh, it's just it's just maintenance proof. And and the, there was another 
thought that that someone else and actually most of the good ideas in the original green actually weren't for me it's it's it was stuff that other people thought of what i would do i was actually blogging parts of the book for a couple of years before it came out and got all kinds of great input from people that that actually the book would have been an embarrassment had i written it in a vacuum it it really would have but uh anyhow this one comment was from uh someone at a uh at a seminar at uh or symposium, I guess it was, at, at Notre Dame. He was another one of the speakers. And, and he said, you know, it is key that when we build things, that we build them in such a way that people will cherish them enough to maintain them. If we don't build them in that way, then they'll just simply discard them as quickly as they can. And, and so I put it sort of in those terms, but not exactly. And I really believe that he was exactly right, that, that uh, if there's not the cherishing of the thing, then, um, you know, its expiration date is coming soon. I want to talk a little bit about some of the things you're working on now. I know you've been working on this walk appeal concept for a while. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by walk appeal and kind of what your mind is is grinding on in terms of that concept being central to uh, a whole lot of things? It's something that I've been trying to figure out. Actually, it's one of those things I've been trying to figure out for a very long time, going back decades. and. Um, uh, it, originally, I called it pedestrian propulsion, which sounded all nice and techy and stuff, and, and uh, but totally, uh, almost totally inhuman. I posted on one of the listeners, and I said, there's got to be a better term than this. Within just seconds of each other, L.J. Auerbach and, and uh, Rob Studable said, why not call it walk appeal? And so that's another one of those things that wasn't my idea, that when you put stuff out there, that, that all sorts of uh, uh, good ideas flow in. But anyhow, the, the basic proposition is this. In the late 1970s, everything had grown so completely unwalkable because of all of the transportation engineers going down the uh, uh, the silo that walkability was the high standard that was very rarely achieved. When a place was walkable, you know, that was big news because it didn't often happen. Uh, but at this point in time, you know, we've actually gotten really good at making walkable places. So we need to really adjust the adjust the term upwards to a higher standard. Now, a walkable place is a place that you're able to walk, but a place with great walk appeal is a place that draws you to walk, it entices you to walk there, uh, you know, makes you want to get out and walk rather than getting in your car. I feel like that we need to be using, uh, using that proposition rather than is it, is it merely walkable? It's like, do you want a meal that is, that is merely edible? Or do you want a book that is merely readable? No, you want you want you want to uh, enjoy great things, and so walking should be the same way. Now, at the very beginning, I was I was so uh, focused on uh, framing it in in a way that was based on the uh, economic health of businesses in a in a walkable place, and and so that if they could have walk appeal, then people would actually come to their business from further away on foot. And, and not uh, drive the car and then, uh, you know, uh, invite in the scourge of the service, surface parking lot, uh, you know, they just walk instead. And so that was my focus at the, at the beginning. But uh, over time, it's become very clear that there's actually three prime uh, beneficiaries of great walk appeal. And, and that is with not only the economic health, but also the environmental health for very obvious reasons. You know, if people walk rather than uh, drive, I don't even need to tell you why that does that. And but really, the biggest beneficiary I, I now believe is actually public health because of uh, what it does to us to uh, uh, walk as much as you know walk more than uh, uh, than we otherwise would. So really, all three of those things. There's nothing that you can do to increase walk appeal that doesn't benefit all three of those. I'll put it that way. We normally say that in architecture and urbanism, there is uh, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. But really, walk appeal may be that silver bullet, quite frankly, because it's just like there's there's no downside. I mean, and and the benefits are so broad to a culture that uh, I mean, there's just no downside to it. I know you're in hurricane country in southern Florida and also in Alabama, where you're at now. You've been involved to one degree or another in rebuilding in Haiti, rebuilding in New Orleans. I know this has been something that's been on your mind. What are some of the, the lessons, some of the things that you've worked on regarding recovery from natural disasters that you think we could learn from today? 
wow, there's there's so many things there. Let me go to to one that is is so new for me. It, it it's uh, uh, that I don't even have a name for it yet. I, I may crowdsource that as well. <laughs> I may uh, put it out there at some point. And say, hey, what should what should we call this? You know, and this came up just after the uh, the Gulf Coast hurricane. Uh, Florida Panhandle this uh, this past year, I was working with uh, with Laura Clemens. Uh, if, if anybody's ever been to CNU, you've probably seen Laura. She's the most energetic speaker I've ever seen. I think I, I said she has more audacity per pound than anybody else I know, even Andres, because he has a few more pounds, you know. But uh, so we were working on on trying to figure out how to how to help these places like Mexico Beach and, and Panama City. Uh, recover and actually, that's two very different propositions because of the level of of destruction. But what occurred to me in Panama City is that what if we come up with a a set of tools that you bring in? You know, after you get now, it it at the very beginning, of course, you know, the people are just trying to cut off the gas lines and and find survivors and all this. And it would not be in that time, but it's in the two three weeks afterwards when you start doing things to actually begin to kind of help the place recover what if you could set things up in such a way on a parking lot it would have to be a parking lot of a certain size where, where you set the neighborhood recovery centers up in such a way that maybe at the at the end of the day you know once the recovery is complete in in, in future years that it is actually it has actually become the neighborhood center you know the tents turn into food carts or 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 utility carts or whatever, and may turn into actual uh, brick-and-mortar shops at some point in a future where that neighborhood doesn't need as much parking anyway. You know, this is what I'm sort of uh, referring to as uh, stealth sprawl recovery. In other words, uh, if you have a place that's just seriously damaged, how can you how can you set things in motion that could turn permanent, or maybe it doesn't. We don't know, but at least it, it uh, once a pattern is established then they very often want to kind of keep that pattern. They get comfortable with it. And so you get used to the, uh, the little uh, coffee food cart being, uh, being there. And so when it turns into the coffee shop, then that's not, it's not a surprising thing, and people would not object to that. And so I'm, I'm toying with this idea of how do you do that. I'm also working on some ideas for a very disinvested place, that the 12 steps of sprawl recovery also work for places that have some good bones of urbanism, uh, but where where the place is very uh, very disinvested and, and and really struggling, a lot of those twelve steps work uh, work the same way or a very similar way in both places. And so, really, it's it's three different uh, settings: a disaster setting, a disinvested setting, or a sprawl setting. I, I'm I'm trying to find tools that actually work in all three, rather than just a, a single thing. As you're as you're explaining this. I can totally see it. You don't think of like the suburban subdivision, the disinvested city and the place hit by a natural disaster as necessarily being similar, but to you and me, and I think to people who are looking at this in a certain way, they're all suffering from the same kind of trauma, right? Exactly. Yeah. They all have uh, some of the very same challenges. It's just that sprawl doesn't know it yet. Right. You know, right. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, what has to happen before, uh, before a, a community is, is actually willing to, to transform themselves. You know, they, they have to, to be desperate enough that they're willing for an extreme makeover. But now I'm using that term because of course that, that's a term often used on the shelter shows, uh, HGTV and all this, to talk about a major transformation of something, normally a, normally a house. But if we can put it in terms like that, that people are already comfortable with anyway, because they watch the shows or whatever, then I think that we have a better uh, chance of, of, of finding uh, communities that would be willing to, to have the extreme makeover, you know, than if we just, uh, than if we just use our uh, geek speak. And so I'm always, trying to find terms that uh, they can spread broadly. Right. Steve, I follow you on your website at Mozon, M-O-U-Z-O-N.com. You also have the original green blog, which you can get to from there. Is there another place where people should, should be following you? Yeah, I do a lot of work on Twitter and on Facebook as well. And I'm just Steve Mozon in both places. And so uh, th- those are easy to find. But yeah, originalgreen.org is where I have the greatest amount of, of material that I 
I hope is useful. There's a little bit. I know you're never offended by me because you're a generous guy. So I'm going to say this this way because I want people to check it out. If you go to Mozan.com, it's a little bit like the if you ever watch the show Sherlock from the BBC and he has like, uh, you know, 50 different kinds of cigarette ash on his website. Steve's website is like that. It's got all these toolboxes and images and, and plan types. And there's all this, there's just, there's so much information there. You're, you're going to be like, who, who would assemble this, but a crazy man. So you're, you're listening <laughs> to him. <laughs> I've said for years that I'm almost always the weirdest person in the room. So that that's, that's testament to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. And I love you, Steve. And I'm, I'm happy that uh, we've gotten to know each other and we're friends. And, and as we approach you know, the 10th year of the original Green Bean out, I'm just going to encourage everybody who doesn't have a copy to not only go get one, it's the original green is the name of the book, not only go get one, but to go get it and then read a chapter and then take a long walk. And then read another chapter and and take a long walk. It's a book that you have to take a lot of long walks with. And uh, Steve, I, I hope you and I can take a long walk someday soon. I'm looking forward to it, Chuck. And thank you so much for having me on. Hey, thanks, friend. You take care. I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. All bye right. Bye. bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.